Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, to take a look at some of the key news stories affecting primary care over the past two weeks. Coming up, we're looking at the demise of smaller GP practices and asking whether small practices are now a thing of the past. We'll be talking about what plans for enhanced access that will be introduced under this year's network contract des from October mean for practices and PCNs. And we'll be discussing what LMCs think about the BMA's approach to GP contract negotiations. Finally, we have a bit of good news about some research on identifying sepsis in primary care. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, it's no secret that over the past 10 to 15 years, we've seen a huge shift in the way general practice is delivered, with the loss of many small practices and a rise in the number of much larger practices. Nick, you've actually been looking at the data on how many small practices we've lost in England since 2015 this week and what that's meant for the average list size. What did you find? So the average list size of GP practices has been going up steadily for some time. Um, back in 2004, when the, the new GMS contract, effectively the, the, the first version of the GP contract that remains in place now, uh, took effect, the average GP practice list size was 5,891 patients. Um, and it's now 9,441. So it's been a, a 60% rise in 18 years. And what's driving that change is the rapid rate of closures and mergers among predominantly small GP practices. So, as you said, the story we published this week um, is about the the loss of small practices since the 2015 general election. And basically, we compared data on GP practices in April that year, just before the election, with figures on practices now. And what that comparison shows is that nearly uh, 1,400 of the practices listed in 2015 no longer exist. So some of those practices have closed, some have merged with other practices. But what we know is that small practices are disproportionately affected. Um, The average 2015 list size of practices that have disappeared is around 4,700 patients, while practices that remain had an average list size of nearly 8,000 patients. You found that small practices do still exist, don't they? but there's just not as many of them now as there were in 2015. Yes, I mean, the, the first point here is how do you define a small practice? And the definition is probably changing as the average list size increases. In in 2004, a practice with 5,000 patients was pretty much average, whereas now it's very much a small practice. Anyway, the number of practices with fewer than 5,000 patients on their list has dropped sharply from around 2,850 in 2015 to just over half that number now. And if you look at even smaller practices with fewer than 3,000 patients, there were about 1,200 of them in 2015, and there are now only 443. So two-thirds of those practices have closed or been subsumed into other practices. It's not necessarily been official policy to get rid of small practices in recent years, but there has generally been this idea, I think, with policymakers and officials that in lots of cases, bigger is better because of this idea that you can provide more services, have a wider multidisciplinary team and all of those things. And certainly, I think, as funding's changed in recent years and workload has increased for various reasons that we've talked about at length on this podcast, it's clearly true that smaller practices have found it much more difficult to survive. And obviously, the pressure on partners in smaller practices can often be much greater because there are less of them to share the burdens of running the business. 
But, you know, whether or not these practices have closed or, or merged with other practices, does it matter that we're losing small practices? Is this something we should be worried about? The big issue that comes up when you talk about the loss of small practices is continuity of care. Analysis we did a few years back on patient satisfaction scores and list size showed that smaller practices tend to have a higher proportion of patients who are highly satisfied with their practice, which suggests that they tend to have better relationships with their patients. And the quality of the GP patient uh, relationship is very much bound up with continuity of care. And good continuity of care in general practice is crucial because it's directly linked to mortality. It helps patients live longer. Um, I mean, I should make clear that continuity at a large practice is by no means impossible. Practices can link groups of patients with specific GPs and other health professionals to effectively uh, replicate the small practice model within their structures, and many do. Uh, But small practices traditionally have been really good at delivering continuity of care, so the concern remains about the impact of losing them. And there's another factor at play because this move to larger practice units is coming at a time when the GP workforce is in decline and practices are struggling with staffing and workload. It may simply be harder for large practices to retain that link between GPs and smaller groups of patients. The move to bigger practices has obviously been a a trend over the past decade, as we've discussed. But is it likely to continue, do you think? In a few years, are we like to see even fewer larger practices? There's no sign of the trend slowing down, so the answer is yes. There are more than three times as many practices with 20,000 or more patients now than in April 2015. About one in 20 practices are now in that category, and we'll soon get to the point where practices in that group outnumber the small ones with list sizes below 3,000 patients. And we already mentioned the decline in the GP workforce, and we've talked about in the past about the, uh, the decline in numbers of GP partners over recent years. And these factors are tied up with the loss of small practices simply because outgoing partners can't be replaced and those that are left can't recruit. So the only way forward is often to merge or close. We reported this week on the latest uh, GP Work Life Survey, a poll carried out every two years by the University of Manchester. Uh, and, And their latest survey suggests that a third of GPs plan to quit roles involving direct patient care in the next five years. So that could mean the loss of 12,000 GPs. The the government's already admitted that its plan to boost the GP workforce by 6,000 by 2024 is not on track. But if all these GPs do leave the workforce, then the the next workforce target will have to be far greater. And as the workforce falls, remaining GPs will be spread thinner, perhaps as part of a much more multidisciplinary workforce and perhaps inevitably at larger practices. I, mean, I think a thing to mention here is, is that the data from NHS Digital don't show where a single organisation or group of GPs holds multiple contracts. So in fact, sort of even more of these practices than it would appear from the, the basic data. Some of the ones that appear as standalone small units in these figures may in fact already be part of a multi-practice group operating across multiple contracts. Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks, Nick. So moving on, as part of this year's GP contract, we're set to see some change in opening hours. The changes are part of the Network Contract Directed Enhanced Service for 2022-23, which is the part of the contract practices sign up to in order to be part of a primary care network. Practices don't have to be part of networks, but as we've discussed on previous episodes of the podcast, the vast majority of additional funding that's coming into general practice over the five years of the contract deal that started in 2019 is coming into networks. 
Up until now, networks have been paid £1.44 per patient for extended access, while CCGs have also had separate funding of £6 a head to deliver extended access for patients as well. From October 2022, this £6 per head is going to be merged into the PCN Enhanced Service and networks will have to provide enhanced access. These new hours will run from 6.30pm to 8pm Monday to Friday and 9am to 5pm on Saturdays. Luke, um, the changes don't mean that every practice will be open during these hours and it will be up to the networks how they organise themselves to do this. Can you explain exactly what NHS England is expecting during these additional hours and how it sees this potentially working? Yeah, so under the contract changes imposed by NHS England for 2022-23, general practice will be expected to de- deliver a minimum of 60 minutes um, of appointments per 1,000 adjusted patients per week in um, what they're calling network standard hours. As you mentioned, NHS England England has said that the service will be at specific times. Um, so from October this year, the enhanced access plans will require practice to deliver a mixture of face-to-face and remote consultations, um, and that will be via a multidisciplinary team um, that includes GPs. And as you said as well, with the funding, that's going to be um, £7.46 per patient per year. Um, so it combines those two funding pools and there's a tad extra on, on top. And the details of the contract explain that the service should include planned care appointments such as vaccinations and immunisations, screening, um, health checks and PCN services, um, which reflect the demands and preferences of the PCN's patient population. It's worth mentioning that BMA guidance highlights that subcontracting the service remains an option um, if practices don't want to carry it out themselves or PCNs rather. Practices have been given until the 31st of July to submit their PCN Enhanced Access Plan and they'll undergo a period of cooperation in August and um, and that will be with commissioners who will finalise the plans um, by the 31st of August. Another thing that I should probably mention is that there is an option for networks to operate part of the service at a time outside of what's been recommended by NHS England, but only um, if networks can show that this is preferential to patients. So as you can see and, and tell from all of that, there's quite a lot for practices and PCNs to, to digest and get their heads around um, before it all starts in October. You've been speaking to some clinical directors about what this will all mean in practice. What sort of problems have they been coming up against with this? Yeah, so one clinical director I spoke to pointed out a couple of issues. The first was around funding. So they told me that practices won't be able to run the service as they would like, or more specifically, they won't be able to staff it as they would like because of a lack of funds. They said that ideally um, PCNs would use GPs and practice nurses to run this or or have a heavy presence of them because of the complex nature of the work. how it um, has a sort of, I guess, heavier focus on everyday GP work. Um, They explained that this was because these members of staff specifically would have a wider knowledge and understanding of patient histories. However, the clinical director said that this just isn't possible at the minute because the the money that they're being given by NHS England um, just isn't enough to put these more expensive staff um, on the rotor. So that's GPs and, and nurses. As a result, he said that networks will essentially be forced to rely heavily on additional roles reimbursement staff um, to run the the enhanced service um, just because they're they're, they're slightly cheaper to use. Um, So they warned me, um, I guess what they were warning um, was that if PCNs ran the service how they would actually like to, they would make a loss from it. Um, So that's with those more expensive staff. And um, and obviously that's not a fair demand to put on practices. Um, So there's a sense that they've not got much choice in how they can run and staff um, this service at the minute.
And is there any likelihood that these new um, enhanced access plans are likely to disrupt other services that are already running in some areas? So the CDI I spoke to explained to me that the funding for enhanced access provided by um, CCGs, that was the £6 per head originally. It wasn't always used purely just for that service. Um, so they told me that there was usually surplus within the funding that could be used uh, by either practices or the federation to organise other services required by patients in the area. Um, so they gave me this specific example of using the surplus for an urgent treatment clinic. However, because they said that fulfilling the DES will be quite costly and probably will be quite tight, they think that the surplus money that there once was for other services won't be available because it will pretty much will be going on staff. And as a result, they said that the, those services that had been paid with the surplus within their locality um, would, could be destabilised, um, which is obviously not a good thing for, for patients and how care is run there. So, yeah, to sum that all up, the feedback from clinical directors suggests that the service can be made to work, but it could be, I guess, half-baked or possibly... It won't provide patients with the best care possible because of underfunding, which is going to make it hard to staff it appropriately. Nick, we're talking about the GP contract for this year there. We've spoken on previous episodes of the podcast about the fact that lots of GPs are not very happy with this year's deal. As we've mentioned before, the BMA hasn't backed the deal either, which is why it's basically being imposed on the profession. Um, But there's been some signs over the past couple of weeks that local medical committees are becoming increasingly unhappy with the way things are going and really seem to want the BMA to step up to do more to protect the current model of general practice. We talked a few weeks ago on the podcast about Health Secretary Sajid Javid seeming pretty keen on the idea of doing away with the independent contractor model, you know, with GPs effectively becoming salaried. And I think, you know, this, along with the disagreement about this year's contract deal, seems to have caused real concern among LMCs, doesn't it? Yeah, there have been signs of growing discontent within the profession and LMCs for a while. Uh, And I think the anger reflects how people feel NHS England and the government are treating the profession, as well as a desire for stronger action from the BMA's GP leadership in terms of how it responds and stands up for general practice. We reported last year on two LMC leaders resigning from policy lead roles within the BMA's GP committee. They quit because they disagreed with the decision to resume talks with NHS England, which had been suspended after health service officials made what were seen as tone-deaf comments around face-to-face appointments at the time. And then earlier this year, there was criticism of GP committee leaders because some senior GPs felt the possibility of industrial action in the form of withdrawal from PCNs had been kicked into the long grass. And then this year's contract has been imposed, as you mentioned, and NHS England has said that it's committed to discussing rather than negotiating contract changes after the five-year deal ends in 2024. And that language has caused concern amongst LMCs because it suggests that the government in NHS England may again choose simply to impose terms on general practice rather than working to reach agreement on contract changes. One LMC said this week in a newsletter to its members that it felt the BMA's GP committee had missed an opportunity to stand up against NHS England over that type of treatment of the profession by failing to act on support within the profession for industrial action last autumn. This week, we reported on a letter drafted by LMCs calling on the BMA's GP committee to do more to stop what they call the slow death of the independent contractor model of general practice. 
The BMA is very clear that it fully supports the independent contractor model, which, as you mentioned, has come under attack this year, notably in a policy report backed by Sajid Javid. Um, but the, the authors of this letter said LMCs have no clarity or understanding over what the GP committee is doing to help us protect and improve the core contract. And they, they said there was nervousness among LMCs about the verve with which BMA negotiators were working to defend uh, independent contractor status. And the, the GPs behind this letter, which was only a draft at the time I saw it, want more vocal support from BMA leaders. They want uh, a clear strategy and vision to defend independent contractor status uh, and for LMCs to be involved in developing and delivering that, as well as more pressure on defending partnerships, better campaigning and so on. Um, the, the BMA wants a profession to stick together at a time when pressure is unprecedented, but for it to retain the support of some parts of the profession, it seems that it may need to be prepared to take a tougher stance. Yeah, no, it's a good point, that, isn't it? Because we're coming towards the end now. We're definitely in the second half of this five-year deal. And, you know, people are starting to look at what comes next after 2024. So it is really important, I think, that the profession sort of all comes together and they seem to have a coherent argument and that the BMA... I guess I guess this is what LMCs want. They want the BMA to be leading that charge, but with the LMCs supporting behind it so that any discussions with NHS England, there's a clear line that independent contractor status needs to stay and that practices need more support to be able to continue to deliver general practice on that model, which has been, as you know, as we all know, been really successful up until now. Just before we go, we've got time for our regular good news spot, which we've not had for the last few weeks. Um, this week's spot is all about some new clinical research that could help GPs identify sepsis earlier. A new six-point diagnostic model that considers age, temperature, blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen saturation and mental status has been developed by Dutch researchers. The system has been found to offer similar performance to diagnostic models commonly used in hospitals, according to a study published in the British Journal of General Practice. The researchers said the model was not intended to overrule GPs' overall judgment, but it could help support busy clinicians, reduce variation in primary care and improve collaboration between primary and secondary care. We'll put a link to the story you've written about this and the research itself in the notes for this episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Nick and Luke. We're back next week. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com.